Morning. morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming, worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. And if you brought your Bibles with you, and I hope that you have, you please take them out and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark and once again to chapter 10. We are just blowing through this chapter as we're studying it. We are going to take a we're going to we're going to take a pretty good chunk of it this morning and the study that we're going to engage in today is going to take us from verses 32 all the way down through verse 45. And as we continue our study, I believe that today we are going to see in the picture that Mark paints for us uh, really is a picture of contrasting examples. In fact, I believe that it is safe to say that in the passage that we are going to look at this morning that we see a picture of Jesus at his absolute highest and we see a picture of his disciples at their absolute lowest. Now let me expand upon that statement for just a moment. You see, based upon our study that we've been engaging on now for well over a year in Mark's gospel, you'll know that it's not anything new for us to see Jesus at the epitome of everything that is good and holy. We see that week after week after week and month after month. But in the passage that we're going to look at today, we see, as one writer has put it, we see a display of Jesus' heroic leadership coupled with His humility and His passion to serve. And what, is, what sets that, that off by really a stark contrast is the example that we see of Jesus' disciples, explicitly of James and John, but implicitly all the rest of the twelve. And they display a penchant for pride and self-glorification and a desire for status and honor. So on the, on the one hand, we see Jesus leading his band of disciples with resoluteness and with, in, in, in humble service. On the other hand, we see those same disciples shamelessly jostling for position. We see them elbowing and clawing one another, fighting for prominence and for notoriety. Now, unfortunately, this is not the first time that we've encountered this really distinctive difference between Jesus and his disciples. In fact, if we just went back uh, one chapter, back to chapter 9, we would have seen Jesus who stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and, and John and Peter and, and was transformed into the glory that was only His from the very beginning of time. And then just a few verses later, the Bible describes the disciples following behind Jesus and they're arguing and disputing with one another as to who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And even then, Jesus called his disciples around him. And in chapter 9, verse 35, he says, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So, as we're going to read this morning, the disciples just didn't get it. They didn't learn the lesson that Jesus was teaching them. They didn't learn from the example that he was setting for them. So as we're going to see, Mark presents for us a picture of contrasting Examples, But we're also going to realize that, that in presenting us with this contrasting example between Jesus and his disciples, we're also going to see that Mark clearly paints for us the severity of our sin and what it costs the Lord Jesus in serving us. We're going to see the high cost of the demands of sinful human beings like you and I. In fact, in our, it is our sin that, that renders each and every one of us helpless and hopeless. 
And it's what necessitated that the divine Son of God come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves by giving His life as a ransom for us on the cross of Calvary. So this is a very weighty passage. It's, 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 it's deep. And so let's get to it. Let's read it. Let's hear God's word this morning as it speaks to us through His Holy Spirit. Beginning in verse 32, the word of God says this. Now, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit upon him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us your Word through your Holy Spirit. Now I pray that you would help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. We pray that you would sanctify, sanctify us by your truth because your word is truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, when you read the very first words of our text, you may be a little bit surprised. I was. When I really first started trying to chew on this, this passage and, and to study it, I, I was surprised by, by what I read. The very first words say this, Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. That is not the surprising part. Though this is the first time in Mark's gospel that we learn that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem by name. 
But we have known that this was coming. We've known this was coming for a while. Jesus had, had centered the majority of his ministry from Mark's, uh, from the way that Mark records it for us, up around the Sea of Galilee. But that ministry and that time of teaching and miracles has, has come to a close. And now he has made his way south and continues to make his way south as he prepares to go to Jerusalem for what would be his very last time. Now, it may be a little bit surprising to think that Jesus is heading south, and yet we talk about him going up to Jerusalem. But the, the fact of the matter was is that he really was going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the holy city and it sits at just under 2,500 feet above sea level. And so whenever you read about anyone in the Bible, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, going to Jerusalem, they always go up because they're heading up the mountain. So that's not the surprising part. What surprises me though is the next words in verse 32 where Mark says that Jesus was going before them and then speaking of the disciples, he says, they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Now, again, this isn't the first time that we've read about the disciples being amazed or astonished. That word that Mark used there has been applied to them on numerous occasions in our study of Mark's gospel thus far. Whenever Jesus would do a miracle or whenever he would teach something or whenever there was many times that the disciples stood before him amazed and astonished at what he did. We also know it's not the first time that they've been afraid. We can even recall back on the boat, back in Mark 4, where they're on the boat and they're, they're out there and the storm comes up. There, there's an intense fear that develops within them there. Other times we would read about them being afraid. So them being astonished and amazed and afraid is really not all that new. But when I began studying this, I began trying to figure out, here's the thing. His disciples, Jesus is leading the charge going up to Jerusalem. And his disciples follow him in astonished amazement and fear for reasons that aren't readily apparent in our text. In other words, Mark provides for us a very curious set of details here in verse 32 that I believe are there to alert us to the ominous future that was in store for Jesus. In fact, I've given you three points this morning. They're just little phrases. They're phrases just for us to be able to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through this text. And so the very first phrase that I provided for you this morning kind of lets us understand what's on its way. And the first point that I want you to see this morning is simply this. It's the fury of the coming storm. The fury of the coming storm. On two previous occasions, Jesus had told his disciples about the storm that was coming. Back in chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus had taught them that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And then again, in the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus told his disciples there that he would be betrayed into the hands of men and be killed. And while it is obvious from both of those contexts that the disciples really didn't get their hands around exactly what Jesus was saying and they didn't completely understand what it was that he was going to do. It is obvious that they understood the gravity of his statements. They did, they did know that he was serious and that there was something driving him that was greater than him. They understood the resolute determination with which Jesus undertook his destiny. The prophet Isaiah had prophesied back in Isaiah 50, verse 7, that the Messiah, when he would come, would set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. Well, here in Mark chapter 10, we see Jesus boldly striding out in front of his disciples 
unafraid and undeterred in the face of the fury that awaited him. And his disciples were astonished and afraid. In the classic, My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers actually writes about this verse. And, and, and Chambers, I believe, gives us some great insight as to the disciples here. He says, there is an aspect of Jesus that chills the heart of a disciple to the core and makes the whole spiritual life gasp for breath. He says, this strange being with his face set like a flint and his striding determination strikes terror into me. He is no longer counselor and comrade. He is taken up with a point of view that I know nothing about. And I'm amazed at him. At first, I was confident that I understood him, but now I'm not so sure. I begin to realize there is a distance between Jesus and me. I can no longer be familiar with him. He is ahead of me, and he never turns around. I have no idea where he is going, and the goal has become strangely far off. I think... Uh, Oswald Chambers' words there give us some insight into the reaction of the disciples, into the reason why they responded to Jesus' leadership at this particular moment the way that they did. But I want you to notice that it is at this point that Jesus once more explains what is going to happen to him. He reveals the fury and the wrath of the storm into which he resolutely walks. As I mentioned, he's already told them twice, but here he provides the most specific details about what awaits him in Jerusalem. Let me read those chilling words for you one more time, beginning in verse 33. Jesus says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him third day he will rise again in the two previous chapters chapter 8 and chapter 9 Jesus had spoken generally about him being put to death here he gives specificity with how it's going to happen with everything that is going to take place about him being mocked about him being flogged about him being spat upon about him being ultimately killed and because of the specificity with which Jesus tells his disciples here, there have been critics of the Bible who have come along and said there's no way Jesus could have known what was going to happen to him to that degree of, of specificity. There's no way he could have known what all was going to take place. So consequently, they have determined that what happened after Jesus was crucified is that someone came back later and added these words and attributed them to Jesus. And the reason that they did that is because they deny that Jesus could have ever foreseen what would have happened to him in such detail those critics however failed to acknowledge that Jesus could have known what he was going to face simply by reading the Old Testament and simply by reading the prophecies that were written concerning him because he knew that he was God's Messiah and he knew that the Old Testament prophecies were written concerning him and all he would have had to have done was to have gone back and read 
also from Isaiah chapter 50, but verse 6, where he says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard, and I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. He could have just moved over three chapters to Isaiah chapter 53, that great servant song there, and said, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He is, was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus knew what lay in front of him. He knew the fury of the storm that faced him as he strode resolutely toward Jerusalem. And I want you to know he did not dally around. He did not drag his feet. He did not look for some other place to go and try to delay the inevitable. No, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our suffering servant, strode out in front of his disciples and led the charge up Calvary's hill. I love how Jeff Thomas has put it. He says that our Lord delayed, or excuse me, displayed a rational and deliberate courage. He says he is the greatest hero this world has ever seen. And then Thomas goes on to write this. He says, at a time of utter loneliness, when not a person on earth could understand or appreciate what he was doing, Jesus chose the road to death because of his love for us. Brothers and sisters, this coming Wednesday, everything that we turn on the TV or look on the, on the, on the computer about or hear on the radio is all going to be about love. I want you to know there is not a greater example of love that you will find anywhere than what you find right here in this text of what Jesus Christ did in his love for you and in his love for me. Now, the great exclamation point that these verses provide us might tempt us to just stop right there. But we must go on. In fact, it's on the heels of this high and very heroic self-sacrificial passage that we come to the next phrase that I want you to consider on your outline. The very next phrase is this. What we come to is an ill-timed and selfish request. An ill-timed and selfish request. Mark tells us that James and John come to Jesus asking him to grant a specific request that they have. In Matthew's account of this story, we find that, that their mother was also there and she was the one even voicing the, the request to Jesus. And what that tells us is, is that th this was a planned and deliberate move on behalf of this family to come and, and to pull Jesus to the side to get his attention and to attempt to try to make him give them what they asked for. Now, the first thing that gets me about this request is the timing. Considering what Jesus had just revealed was going to happen to him, in light of the fury of the coming storm that lay in front of him, in light of the, the, the sacrifice and the shame that Jesus was going to suffer at the hands of his own people and at the hands of the Romans, can you imagine a more inopportune time to come to Jesus and make a request like the one that we read here? James and John say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Just the way that they state it is stunning to me. 
It's as if when they looked at Jesus, they were just looking at someone who they believed was there to simply fulfill their every desire and every hope and every dream. It's as if they have pulled up to the drive-thru at a, at, a, at a restaurant and have placed their order and expected Jesus to just come out and hand them their food hot, ready, and cheap. It's appalling, really, how rudely mannered and badly behaved these two disciples are. But before you and I throw too many rocks and stones their direction, we should consider what R.C. Sproul has written. He says, we, of course, often fall into the same pattern, bombarding God with request after request, demand after demand, as we focus on our own needs and wants above those of those around us. Notice that Jesus doesn't immediately say, sure, I'll give you whatever you want. Some would say that's exactly how Jesus always responds to us. It's not how he responded here. He doesn't respond that way at all. He says, what do you want me to do for you? He wants them to give them specificity. And here's the second appalling thing. It's not just the timing, it's the nature of this request. James and John say, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. In other words, Jesus, once you come into your kingdom and you become king of kings and lord of lords, this is what we want. We want the best seats in the house. We want the penultimate positions in your, in your throne room. We want to be right at your side, both left and right. Simply put, what these brothers are asking for is they wanted status. They wanted eternal positions of power. And as ill-timed and as selfish as this request is, I want you to know, as we mentioned earlier, this is not the first time that we've seen this kind of behavior out of the disciples. As I mentioned, they were arguing, arguing with one another about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. John himself, later in chapter 9, we recall, had forbade one who was going out and casting out demons in the name of Jesus, forbade that one from doing it. Why? Because he was not one who followed them, he says. He was not a part of the twelve. And so there's, contextually speaking, a lot of one-upmanship that's been taking place among the ranks of the disciples. In fact, from what we learn of James and John's request, they were competing against one another for first place. They were, trying to, they were trying to outmatch one another for power and for advantage. And they wanted to dominate. They didn't want to serve. They had been together for three years by this point. And Jesus' earthly ministry was building up to its ultimate climax. But... What becomes obvious is that the disciples still didn't understand. The climax of Jesus' ministry was far different from anything that they had anticipated. They were expecting Jesus to claim the throne and to begin ruling over Jerusalem and to, be, to establish His messianic kingdom. They wanted glory, but as Jesus had been teaching them and as He had just explicitly told them, there was no glory apart from the cross. Jesus goes on to tell James and John, guys, you have no idea what you've just asked for. You have no clue as to the implications of your request. And to emphasize that, he says, are you able to drink from the cup from which I drink? Or are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And the very nature of that question demands that they say no. But inexplicably, they look at Jesus and they say, we are able. This proves that they still didn't get it. 
In fact, I almost wanted to entitle this sermon, They Just Don't Get It, Do We? Because you see just how much like the disciples we are, if we stop shaking our heads at them long enough, we begin to realize just how much like them we are. Jesus uses two metaphors to describe what's going to happen to him. He talks about the cup and he talks about baptism. The cup, always in the Old Testament, portended toward the understanding of the wrath of God. In fact, Jesus will even later in chapter 14, verse 36 say, Let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but thy will. So the cup, the cup was pointing toward the wrath that he would suffer, God's wrath against sin. Baptism is parallel to it. Because baptism is always means the immersion to be submerged. And so when it's talking about it's talking about being engulfed. It's talking about being overwhelmed by the disaster that was going to come his way. And Jesus says that the disaster, the, the overwhelming engulfing of him is going to be from the, from the flood of God's wrath against sin. Why does Jesus use these two metaphors of the cup and baptism here? Because he's pointing James and John to understand that they absolutely had no way of being able to drink from that cup and to be baptized with that baptism. You see, Jesus is pointing out the uniqueness of his mission. Only he can drink from the cup of God's wrath and be baptized into the wrath of God against sin and emerge victorious. Which is why he said, they will, they will mock me, they will spit on me. They will ultimately kill me, but I will rise again on the third day. Christ will be flooded with the fury of God's wrath and inundated with the Father's judgment. But he will emerge victorious. James and John had no understanding of what they said. They thought they were strong. They thought they were committed. But as Sproul writes, he says they would abandon Jesus at the first sign of trouble and leave him to drink of the cup and undergo his baptism utterly alone. Jesus does tell them, look, you will ultimately go through a great deal of suffering on the surface that will look a lot like mine. You will drink of this cup and you will be baptized in the baptism with which I am baptized, although they would never be able to bear the weight of sin as Jesus did. But there is a lesson there for us. And the lesson is this. You remember Jesus had already said, if anyone would be my disciple, he must do what? He, was, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and come follow me. In other words, what he is saying is, you've got to come and identify with me. And by identifying with me, you will have to identify me with me in my suffering. You'll have to identify with me in my disgrace and in my humiliation. And friends, it is only when we identify with him that we will ever be able to participate with him in his glory. James and John wanted the glory apart from the cross. That was exactly what Satan had tempted Jesus with in, 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 in the desert region. He says, I'll give you everything that you want to look for. All the nations will bow down before you and you won't have to go to the cross. But Jesus stood up to his temptation. And the message of the gospel throughout is simply this. There is no glory apart from the cross. Now James and John have asked for two specific seats. One on the right and one on the left. Jesus tells them, look boys, you're going you're to identify with me in my suffering." But as it pertains to these two seats, they're not mine to give. 
They're the fathers, and he's already prepared them for those that are going to sit there. We might want to know who those two are, but Jesus doesn't tell us. James and John just know it ain't going to be them. But things get worse. Because having been given that little cold dose of water, bad news, they turn around and the other ten are looking at them. Matter of fact, I almost want to give this point the ticked off ten. That's what I almost put it, but I didn't. The other ten are ticked. They're angry. They're mad. And I wish what I could tell you was is they're upset. Uh, they're upset with James and John because they're offended because the honor of Christ has been offended. I wish what I could tell you is, is that the other ten are upset with James and John because they have grievously taken advantage of their relationship with Christ. I wish that's what I could tell you, but I don't think that's it at all. I think the other ten are mad because James and John got there first. I think the rest of them are upset because they didn't think about it, and James and John did. And can you imagine if you were Peter? I mean, Peter was right there with James and John all the time, right? He's part of the inner three. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there when the, when the little girl was raised back to life with, with James and John. I mean, the three of them, they were like peanut butter and jelly, and I don't know what the third thing is, and that's exactly how Peter felt. He was the, he was the, he was blocked out. James and John had the spots. And I can only imagine what must have been going through his mind. Well, Jesus sees what's going on and he stops his trek up the mountain to Jerusalem to call his 12 back to himself to have a conversation with them. And that then leads me to the last point, the last little phrase I want you to see. When he talks to them, he gives them three things. There's a prohibition, an expectation, and a clarification. Let's begin with the prohibition. Notice that the first thing Jesus says to his disciples is this. There are those out there in the world... There's those out there in the Gentile authorities who love to lord their authority over everyone under their rule. They misuse, they abuse their authority and their power. They have no sense of responsibility. And they were certainly not willing to serve others. Such examples would have been well known to the disciples. But Jesus says in verse 43, here's the prohibition. He says, yet it shall not be so among you. In other words, Jesus says that may be the way that the world behaves and that may be the mantra of everybody else on the outside, but I will not have it among my followers and it will not be so in my house. So there's the first prohibition. Followers of Christ are not to be preoccupied with status and privilege and honor and greatness. But notice that Jesus follows that prohibition up with an expectation. He says, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Jesus inverts the example that's been set by, by the Gentile authorities out there. He takes it and turns it upside down and, and changes it and actually redefines the entire thing and applies it back to his own people this way. He says, if you want to go up, the best way to go up is to go down. If you want to lead, then you've got to serve. If you want to become exalted, then you've got to be abased. If you want to be big, then you've got to become small. In fact, I love what D.L. Moody has written. D.L. Moody says this. He says, we may easily be too big for God to use, but never too small. 
Moody also says this. He says, the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many men he serves. Brothers and sisters, we need to pay attention to what Jesus says here. We need to listen to his words. This is his ethic. This is the ethic to which he drives us. And it is this. If you want to lead, you have to see yourself as a servant. And it's that understanding that the disciples, specifically James and John, just didn't get. They were looking for glory apart from the cross... But Jesus corrects their misunderstanding, and then in doing so, he gives clarification to his mission. And the clarification comes there in verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. I want you to notice Jesus turns everything upside down. They were thinking of a, of a ruling king on a throne who had servants always ruling and serving him. Jesus says, that's not the kind of king I've come to be. I've come to be a servant king who has come to serve others. And how would he do that? By giving of his own life. In other words, Jesus came to give his life. He came to die in order to pay the ransom, in order to satisfy the demands of God's justice. God's holy wrath against sinners was satisfied by Christ's death. Jesus gave himself for that purpose, and he did so voluntarily, and he did so obediently. And that is why the Apostle Paul could write to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 23, and tell them and us that you were bought with a price. That is also why the Apostle Peter could write in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, you were redeemed not by corruptible things like silver and gold, but then he goes on to say, but by and with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and without spot. So in this passage, Jesus has confronted his disciples with his own example. They were guilty of jockeying for position. They were concerned with who would be first and chief and tops. They wanted recognition. Jesus, on the other hand, is striding resolutely toward the cross where he would serve them and us by laying down his life in order to pay the debt that our sin had incurred. That then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Selfish ambition that desires status and honor conflicts with the humble attitude of service that Jesus displayed by willingly giving his life as the atoning sacrifice on the cross. As we close this morning, I just want to leave you with just a couple of thoughts, and I'm indebted to Alistair Begg. He's one of my favorite preachers. And so, unapologetically, I'm telling you, I stole this from him, but I want to give it to you. He says this very simply, it is in serving that your greatness is displayed. It is in serving that your greatness is displayed. Begg goes on to say this. He says, this passage confronts the pride that tends to rise up inside us. It addresses a culture that is preoccupied with self-esteem, self-aggrandizement, status, and evaluations that are made on the basis of things that are transient and eventually worthless. This is the kind of thing that marks our culture, but it is not to be so among those who follow Christ.
Rather, he says, God's people are always at their most effective when both by their life and lifestyle, they are clearly countercultural, not least of all when it comes to the issue of status and privilege. The measure of an individual's greatness is the extent to which that individual is prepared to live in the service of others. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater example set for us than the one to whom we owe our very lives. The one of whom the Apostle Paul said, being, though being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen and amen, let it be so. Brothers and sisters, let us follow this Christ who gave his life for us and sets himself up as our example because brothers and sisters, this is God's very word and it is given to God's very people. Let's pray together.